Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14 will be our sermon text for this morning, Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. But before we read that together, let's pray together one more time. Let's pray. Our Father, we we come because our Savior did bleed, our Sovereign did die upon the cross. He gave himself for us that we might have life. And Father, we pray that as we draw near to you this morning, as we come to hear your word, we pray that you would speak to us about the glories of our Savior, that you would remind us of all that he has done, that you would help us to rest more fully in the gospel, that you would refresh us with your mercy and grace. Uh, We pray that you would do that by your spirit, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on us to that end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Is your conscience clean? There's a famous scene in Shakespeare's Macbeth where uh, Lady Macbeth is, is sleepwalking and she's rubbing her hands together, trying to remove what she thinks is the, the blood of her victim. And she cries out, out damn spot. She goes on to say, here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. 
You find the same guilty conscience in Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart, right? The murderer is assaulted by guilt as he hears the beating of his dead victim's heart buried beneath the floorboards. Is your conscience clean? We'll tell you my conscience is not always clean, but by God's grace, it can always be cleansed. This morning, we're going to talk about our consciences and specifically how they can be cleansed. We'll do that by asking a few questions about conscience, uh, some basic questions. First, what is it? How does it go wrong? How do we cope? Why doesn't that work? What has Christ done? And what should you do now? So that's, I think, six questions. What is it? How does it go wrong? How do we cope? Why doesn't that work? What has Christ done? And what should you do now? So first, conscience, what is it? Uh, Everyone has some sense of right and wrong. Now, that's not to say that everyone agrees about what is right and what is wrong, but everyone has some sense of right and wrong. Oh, oh, I know, right? There are people who philosophically believe that that there is no right and wrong, that morality is all relative, Uh, but just try to steal their wallet or take their car or dump your trash in their yard, and suddenly what is right and wrong will become very clear to them. Some have pointed out that our present day is is not apathetic about right and wrong at all. In fact, people have a strong sense of morality. Young people want to to work for companies that make a difference in the world. They want to see change. They demand justice. This sense of right and wrong is your conscience. Uh, Put differently, conscience is your moral consciousness. If you look at something and say, that's not right, That thing inside you that says that's not right is your conscience. Now, the the Bible says that we have a conscience because God's law is written on our hearts. This is not in the sense in which we talked about a few weeks ago in Hebrews 8.10. God is talking about writing the law on our hearts as moral transformation. But Romans 2 talks about the law on our hearts in terms of information. Again, this moral consciousness. Uh, uh, Paul says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning they're the Old Testament moral law of God, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so the work of the law is written on our hearts. Our conscience is that little part in our mind that compares what we do and see to what the law requires and makes a judgment, either accusing or excusing. This is the role of conscience, to bear witness, to testify to us about the morality of our actions. Everyone has a conscience. Because we are made in the image of God, who is the standard of right and wrong. But though everyone has a conscience, our consciences do not always work as they ought. Which brings us to the next question, how does it go wrong? 
there are some people who seem to get away with murder without the least pangs of conscience. And that there are others who seem always to be a nervous wreck, afraid that they might do something wrong at any moment. Our consciences are broken. Sometimes we do bad things and our consciences remain quiet, or at least mostly quiet. And sometimes we do good things, or at least indifferent things, and our conscience tells us we are in the wrong. It condemns us. Well, in Scripture, there are actually at least four different categories of consciences, right? Your, your conscience may be good or, or clean, or it may be defiled or seared or weak. Uh, both Paul and Peter talk about maintaining a good conscience, which basically means not acting contrary to conscience. A clear conscience, similarly, right, means one always does what he or she knows is right. There, there is nothing marring their conscience. It doesn't mean they're perfect people, but there is nothing in the ledger of conscience that they haven't dealt with. And so their conscience is clear. And so a, a good or a clear conscience means doing what we know to be right and dealing quickly with anything we do wrong so it doesn't leave a stain on our conscience. Then there's a, a defiled conscience, right? It's essentially the opposite. When, when one goes about, uh, when one goes against what conscience says is right, it leaves a defiling stain. We tend to talk about this as guilt, having a guilty conscience. And this is where Lady Macbeth comes in, right? Trying to cleanse her hands because her conscience is bearing witness against her. She is not clean and she knows it. When we go against our conscience, our conscience is defiled and guilt weighs heavy upon us. Then there's a seared conscience. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 4.2. This is when through repeated sin, our consciences are are burned, as it were, right? Sin, uh, like coming close to a fire, uh, changes you. Eventually, you get burned. Your conscience is seared. Your heart becomes insensitive to moral right and wrong. This is when it begins to become easy to do wrong. Your conscience no longer speaks out loud as it should. It's as if you've cut out its tongue. This is one of the things that gives the lie to the thought, well, I'll keep sinning now and just repent later on. If you ought to repent now, repent, right? Don't wait because eventually you will harden your heart beyond repentance. You will sear your conscience. You, You can't leave the bread in the oven and just hope it won't burn, right? Take it out now while you have the chance. Finally, there's a weak conscience. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8. And uh, Charles Hodge says about that passage, 1 Corinthians 8, he says, A weak conscience is one which either regards as wrong what is not in fact so, or one which is not clear and decided in its judgments. According to the scriptures, he goes on, Whatever is not of faith is sin. Therefore, whatever a man does, thinking it is wrong, or doubtful whether it be wrong or not, to him it is sin. The conscience in this case is weak because the faith is weak. The individual is living not by faith in the scriptures, but some other reality still has sway in his or her heart. So you might think something is wrong because you grew up being told it was wrong, but scripture doesn't say so. This is the weak conscience. 
sometimes it plays itself out in perpetual worrying, believing that every little decision will lead to sin. You go from being desensitized to being hypersensitive. People talk about this as being uh, overscrupulous, which is just a fancy word for being overly careful about what is morally right. And, and I would say it often comes from not having a clear grasp of the gospel, not resting in the grace of God. But let me stop for a second and ask, which one of these most describes you? Is your conscience defiled? Are you weighed down with guilt? Do you have a sense of the stain of sin on your soul? Has your conscience become seared through repeated sin? Have you muted the condemning voice within? Is your conscience weak? Do you see sin in everything? Are you constantly on edge for yourself and others, worried that every act might plunge you into unredeemable rebellion? Or is your conscience good, clean, clear? So what is conscience? Conscience is this internal moral consciousness or internal moral compass. How does it go wrong? We, we sin and defile our consciences, and if we keep sinning, we can sear them. And if we don't get a clear grasp of the gospel after we come to faith in Christ, our consciences remain weak, controlled by the categories and philosophies of this age, and they condemn us even when we're not in the wrong. And question three, how do we cope? Right? How, how do we cope with a defiled or guilty, weak, or hypersensitive conscience? I guess there, there are a few man-made coping strategies. A pleasure is one way. Uh, if, if I can just feel good enough, maybe the good feelings will drown out the bad. We should not think about this just in terms of, quote, those big sins in the world. Right? It, it's true. Some people try to drown out guilt with drugs, or sometimes people use sexual immorality, but just as often, people use a quiet, ordered life or a good cup of coffee or the pleasures of academia, right? Pleasures don't have to be illicit to be misused. Pleasure is one way. Pain is another, right? Sometimes people use physical pain to drown out emotional pain. Again, this is, this is just one reason that people might cut themselves. But there could be other kinds of pain, right, that, that feel better than a condemning conscience, so we, tweak, we seek to quiet conscience with pleasure and pain and sometimes doing good, right? You see, if I, if I can do enough good to outweigh the bad, we think, then I'll be okay. If I can help enough people, maybe I can quiet the inner demons that tell me I haven't lived up. A subset of this is just keeping the rules, right? It's, it's not so much about what good I can do in the world, but how meticulously I can keep the rules myself. If I can keep the rules, I can prove to myself that I'm not as bad as my conscience says I am. I can silence that inner critic. Religion is often used in this way, right? If I just do the right religious things, then I can feel good about myself. Similarly, there's accomplishment, right? This is just another way of, of proving yourself, right? Trying to justify your place in the world. If I can just accomplish something, either in my eyes or in the eyes of others, then I can gain my own approbation. Look at what I did and quiet the feelings of failure within. Sometimes we use blame or shame, right? We, we blame others for what we've done so we can pass the buck. Think Adam with Eve in the garden. 
Or sometimes we shame others so that we can feel better about ourselves because at least I'm not like them after all. Well, let me mention just one more. You, you have cultural or legal acceptance, right? Uh, when the Supreme Court acted five years ago to legalize same-sex marriage, an 84-year-old woman who had hidden her lesbianism all her life came out saying, uh, the legality made me feel that, hey, this is okay. I'm a part of society. This is the way it should be. I don't need to hold back or pretend anymore. If other people, you see, if the law says it's okay, it must be okay, we think, regardless of what my conscience might be telling me. And so you have pleasure and pain, doing good and keeping rules, accomplishing something in the world, blame or shame, the approval of others. We use all of these things and more to try to silence the inner voice, to cope with a defiled and guilty and overactive conscience. The problem is, of course, it doesn't work. And the next question is, why not? Why not? Why doesn't that work? You know, while our text doesn't talk about all of those ways that we try to quiet our conscience, it does mention something that can't. And this something is not just something that we try, but something that God gave. And so it's worth looking at and asking, of, of all things, why doesn't it work? You see, our passage begins by describing for us the Old Testament system for purification. Uh, verses 1 through 5 describe the physical space where purification took place. You had two rooms, an outer and an inner. In the outer room, what's called the holy place, there was a table with bread and a lampstand. The inner room, the most holy place, had two things. Uh, the altar of incense, which was at its entrance, and the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a box with a lid called the mercy seat. The writer says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, which probably means I shouldn't either, as much as I want to launch into describing each of those pieces of furniture. And in verses 6 through 10, the writer then explains what happens in those rooms. Uh, into the first room, the holy place, the priests go regularly, day after day, performing their ritual duties, lighting the lamps, replacing the bread, offering incense on the altar. And in the second room, only the high priest goes, and then only once a year, taking blood offered for his own sins and the sins of the people. But notice what is said about these Old Testament offerings. Uh, look at verses 9 and 10 again. Beginning in the middle of verse 9, it says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And then again, verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Uh, what did those Old Testament sacrifices do? They, they dealt with the flesh. They, they dealt with outward things, food and drink and washings. They purified the body, which means, or the flesh, which means that they, they made one ritually or ceremonially clean. But notice what they could not do. Verse 9 says that they could not perfect the conscience. In fact, Hebrews 10 will go on to say, otherwise, if they could perfect the conscience, right, 
they, they would, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. See, those Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies could not perfect the conscience. Why not? This brings us back to all of those other coping mechanisms that we have. Even if, even if our coping strategies fail, surely the God-given ceremonial system should prevail. The Old Testament system could not do any better. Why not? Let me give you just a, a couple of reasons. Uh, the, the first is that whatever your strategy, whether your strategy is some man-made system of rules, whether your strategy is I'm going to keep to that Old Testament ceremonial law, the truth of the matter is we don't even live up to that. Right? So whatever our strategy is, we find we keep falling short even of our coping mechanisms. Right? We, we can't fully live up even to the standards that we set for ourselves, much less to the standards of God. And so however hard we try, we find we keep falling short even of the ways that we cope. But second, and maybe more importantly, right, whatever your strategy, it doesn't affect the heart. Right? This should be clear by, by the way we became defiled in the first place. You know, Jesus said in Mark 7, do, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, it's not the outward things that make us unclean, and so the outward things can that cannot then make us clean. Our consciences have been defiled because our hearts are sinful. We need something that can reach our hearts, our inward man, our conscience. And none of our strategies do that. Third, whatever your strategy, it doesn't deal with the source of the problem. It can't reach the heart, and it doesn't deal with the real source of the problem. See, the, the source of a guilty conscience is not a guilty conscience. I've heard uh, someone wrongly define sin before as uh, sin is what people call those things which they think are wrong. Now, if that were the case, uh, we would just need to redefine sin and suddenly we would be guilt-free. But that doesn't work, right? Our, our guilty feelings remain. Why? Because what defines sin is objective. That is, it, it doesn't change from person to person. God's law is written on our hearts and God's law does not change. If we had acted against God's law, we, we, we don't just feel guilty, we are guilty. Whatever you do in the present doesn't deal with the objective guilt of your past. Even if I always did what was right from here on out, that still doesn't change what I have done wrong. And so that objective guilt remains. Jeremiah 2.22 says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much Soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. 
even the Old Testament, sacrificial system, right, does not really deal with objective guilt. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so, you know, other people might accept me. Man's law might be rewritten. But God's law is written on my heart, and it has not changed. The source of my problem is that I have broken God's law, which means I am under God's anger for sin. I need, I need to regain not the approval of men, but the approval of God. Finally, whatever your strategy, it will inevitably compound your guilt. Now, this is not necessarily true with the Old Testament sacrificial system, though it was actually true. Because the people not only broke the moral law, they, they broke the ceremonial law as well. But it is true with all of our man-made strategies, right? Coping actually compounds guilt. Uh, how, how is that? Well, you, you see, if, if, I'm, if I'm so focused on clearing my guilty conscience, then I'm not free to love God and neighbor. I can't serve others if I'm too busy trying to pacify my conscience. And often when I do serve others, it's part of my attempts to pacify my conscience. And so I serve others for my sake, not for God's sake, not even for their sake. Even my best deeds often come not from love, but from guilt and fear. So all of our coping mechanisms and our man-made strategies don't reach my heart. They, they don't deal with the root of the problem, my objective guilt, and they actually compound my guilt as I spend my life serving self, not God or neighbor. So we need a, we need a way forward that will deal with our, our, our past, deal with our guilt, deal with our hearts, and then free us to serve. Which brings us to the next question, what has Christ done? According to our passage, Christ has done three things. Christ offered, Christ entered, and in doing so, Christ secured. First, and chiefly, Christ offered. Verse 14 says, Christ offered himself without blemish to God. And what that means is clear. Verses 12 and 14 talk about Christ's blood. His offering was offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. His blood re represents his life, right? As the Old Testament puts it, the, the, life, the life is in the blood. The blood is symbolic for the, for the life being offered up. And Christ's sacrifice of himself is generally called the atonement. In fact, the writer of Hebrews has already alluded to the Old Testament day of atonement. When the high priest entered into the most holy place, to present the blood of the sacrifice before God. And there are lots of aspects to the atonement, to Christ's sacrifice, uh, but, but one of the most important is that the atonement is substitutionary. Uh, that means that Jesus died as our substitute in our place. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest confessed the sins of Israel over one of two goats. Uh, now, that goat was actually let go into the wilderness to symbolize the removal of Israel's sins, but the other goat was slaughtered to make atonement for those sins. And here's the point. When we break God's law, we incur guilt, not just guilty feelings, but objective guilt. We become liable then to judgment. When you break even a man-made law, you become liable to the judgment of the court, well, when you break God's law, you become liable to the judgment of God. Scripture teaches that sin, breaking God's law, deserves death. 
Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But God in his mercy has provided a substitute. Jesus came to die in our place, to shed his blood. To shed his blood, well, so, so we could keep ours. Right? He, he offered himself for our sins. Jesus was dealing with our objective guilt. You see, subjective guilt can only truly be pacified when our objective guilt is removed. You might ask, well, how is that different from the Old Testament sacrifices? I mean, they had blood, Jesus has blood. How are things different? Well, first, let me say something that on the surface actually looks the same, which is that Jesus was without blemish. This was a requirement for the Old Testament sacrifices. They had to be physically unblemished. Uh, Peter draws the conclusion in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, or draws the connection. He says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. But when Peter, there in 1 Peter, and Hebrews, here in Hebrews 9, say that Jesus was without blemish, they don't mean physically, like the Old Testament sacrifices, but spiritually and morally. Jesus was sinless. He was pure. And the point is that he had no sin. He did not need to die for his own sins because he had none. He was not liable to judgment. And yet he chose to die for our sins, to become liable to judgment in our place as our representative. And he could do that. He could die in our place because he was a man. He was keeping the the eye-for-eye principle. In this case, it was man for man and life for life. But Scripture says in Psalm 49, uh, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So even if Jesus was perfect, he, he only has one life to give, right? How could he purchase forgiveness for any other purchase person, much less so many other people? This is where Jesus' divinity comes in, right? He, he could die for man because he was a man. He could bear the sins of all men because he was God. Being the son of God, his person was more valuable than every individual in creation, and so he could offer himself for all who believe. He was not a bull or a goat or a calf, right? He, he is the God-man offering himself for the sins of the world. And yet he doesn't only offer himself. Uh, The cross was not the end of Jesus' work. He also rose and entered. Verse 11 says, Jesus entered through the greater and more perfect tent, that is heaven, right? The tent not made with hands, not of this creation, that is not of this earth. And as the, the high priest entered once a year, Jesus entered once for all, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is entering into the very throne room of God. He is entering into the courtroom, there to show the Father, the the judge of all the earth, the price that has been paid for us. He is there to demonstrate that justice has been satisfied. And in so doing, he secures, verse 12, an eternal redemption. Well, why? Because because he has paid the price for our sins. He has redeemed us from the chopping block. He has freed us from the executioner's acts. He has bought our pardon from death row. And and this is not unjust because he himself took the executioner's acts. He suffered the penalty for sin. Uh, Scripture here often uses financial imagery for this. Uh, We had a debt to pay to God. Jesus came to pay that debt. 
And that debt being paid, we are now debt free. He offered himself. He entered into the heavenly courtroom of God and thus presenting his blood to the Father secure an eternal redemption. Which really brings us to our last point, our final question. What should you do now? And there are a number of things that, that we could say here, but let me just mention two. First is our text tells us that Christ secured an eternal redemption, that he might purify our conscience. But how does that apply to us? You know, in the Old Testament, everything uh, was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. How are we sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? How are we sprinkled and thus cleansed of our sin? Well, John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, what does it mean to walk in the light there? Uh, John explains. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you would be cleansed of your sin, confess it. Confess it to God. Cry out to him. Uh, tell him all the things that you have done. Own up to it in his sight. Confess it and believe this promise to those who confess. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And don't do this just once, by the way, because you don't sin just once. We sin daily, and so we confess daily as Jesus taught in what we call the Lord's Prayer. He taught us to, to daily pray, forgive us our sins. Second thing that I would say is this. The second way we should respond to this, the second thing that we should do now is this. Notice the, the goal of Christ's work in Hebrews 9. Right there at the, the, the very end of verse 14, the goal of Christ's work is to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. His goal is not uh, so we can be selfish, guilt-free, but so we might serve the living God. By cleansing our defiled conscience, we are now to obey conscience, right, as conscience is renewed by the gospel. And so know the depth of the forgiveness we have in Jesus, and so be free to take up your cross and follow him. Live your life as a living sacrifice. Serve God by serving others. You no longer have to live your life trying to deal with your guilt, trying to cover it over, trying to hide it from others, trying to pacify it yourself. No, you are free, free to love as you have been loved. Now, maybe you're still not sure. Is Christ really willing to cleanse me, to clear my conscience? I mean, you know, you don't know all that I've done, you might be thinking, right? You don't know all that I've done every day, the ways that I fall short, the ways that I fail. Will Christ really cleanse my sin and clear my conscience? When Matthew 8, a, a leper comes to Jesus and he kneels before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Come to Jesus and say, if you will, you can make me clean. And hear him respond, I will be clean. 
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his shed blood on the cross. We thank you that he dealt with our sin, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to, to revel in the cleansing blood of Jesus, to rejoice in it, to rest in it, and in turn help us to then go out, go out and serve you with our lives having been freed from sin, and we can now serve you with gladness. Help us to do that, to serve you by serving others, to love you by loving others, to your honor and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.